trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. I don't know if you're an experienced wrong thinker, maybe a first timer testing the waters. But you have found a place where you can count on commentary delivered, hopefully rationally, without the spittle flinging. And with an eye towards uh, giving you information to work with, you don't have to believe what I'm sharing with you. Okay, so let's let's be let's be perfectly upfront about this. Uh, in no way am I thinking that you should believe everything that I say or everything that I share. You don't have to. You don't even have to trust me. I'm just putting some information out here for your consideration. What you do with it is entirely up to you. Now, I do admit I'm trying to encourage people to think clearly and independently about the world around us. Things uh, being like they are and kind of a state of upheaval and instability, that's a really important quality. In fact, it's probably the highest duty that we have as citizens to think clearly and independently in times of crisis. Well, the show will give you some resources to be a wrong thinker, to question the narrative. And there's, there's a danger in this in that uh, when people start to wake up and realize, you know what, I have been lied to or I've been... I've been fed information that tries to shepherd me in a particular direction, but doesn't necessarily correspond with reality. That's when you start to appear crazy, or at least uh, out of step with other people. And and, uh, you'll find there are people who will actively push to try to get you to go back to sleep. Come on, man, close your eyes. You're making me uncomfortable. That's very normal, even if it is uncomfortable for you to realize that uh, suddenly you're on the outside. You're not part of the in crowd anymore because... You are seeing things from a different perspective. So this isn't about how much better we are than everybody else who hasn't yet woke up to that. We're all somewhere in that journey of fighting our way out of the swamp of misinformation. But I appreciate you being a part of this audience, and I hope that you'll find that what I have to share with you is is worthwhile. I have some great sponsors who make this program possible. Let me just acknowledge them. MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, who, by the way, have some really cool swag if you want to check it out. SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com and GovernYourIncome.com. So I actually have some really great stuff today. I mean, some just cutting-edge commentaries to share with you. But I want to start with something that uh, is, is very close to my heart. My oldest friend in the world passed away this weekend. Now, when I say my oldest friend, I mean she was literally my oldest friend. 96 years old, um, my dear friend Edna Neighbor uh, graduated from this life. And I just, I want to share this experience with you just because, th- here's, here's my reasoning. So hopefully you're not going to get a chance to hear me, you know, break down and start blubbering. But we never realize the impact that we are going to have on the lives of people around us. You just don't know. Little things add up to uh, to really life-changing things. And that's true for negative, you know, negative acts as well as for positive acts. Well, in the case of the neighbor family, it is possibly one of my fondest memories. In fact, I think it is. I'll just come right out and say it. My fondest memory of the time that I spent living in southern Utah was the fact that I was adopted 
by Abraham and Edna Neighbor. I became an, an honorary son, and and I, I first met Abe July of 1997 when I was asked to, to come and uh, speak at a 4th of July flag raising. Now, at the time, I was doing a morning show and, you know, just uh, just kind of getting getting my feet under me in southern Utah radio. But uh, Abe was, was a very well-studied, classically educated guy, super well-read, and had a great love for liberty. And I guess he sensed or he, he saw something in me that there was likewise a little flame of, of liberty that was just beginning to take hold. And Abe, without imposing himself on me, became a mentor to me. He invited me to come and speak at the 4th of July flag raising, which was a great experience, and uh, then invited me to, to attend family events, their family reunions, family parties, and so forth. And, and pretty soon, uh, my wife and, and our growing little brood of kids uh, became, you know, we, we became honorary members of, of the neighbor clan. And Edna was right there by his side, these two wonderful people with just outstanding kids. People who've lived in southern Utah will know that uh, this is a family that has, has had a very positive influence in whatever communities they, they've lived. But uh, Abe was one of my dearest friends, one of my most faithful listeners on the radio, very distinctive voice. You know, he would, he would call in and, and uh, people, people knew that was Abe, you know, calling in. He passed away back in 2003. And I will be forever grateful to his daughter-in-law, Linda, um, who caught me coming out of work one day. We worked in the same building, and she told me, hey, Abe's had a stroke. You should probably, you should probably go see him. And, and I gathered from what she was saying. Um, this, this was probably, he was, he was getting close to the end. And I said, oh, man, I, I am just so busy. I wonder if I could run and see him tomorrow. And she kind of caught my arm and said, it might be a good idea if you go sooner than later. So I took the hint, and I went and I saw Abe, and there he was at his home. Unfortunately, the stroke rendered him unable to speak, and, but, but his eyes just lit up as soon as I walked in. Um, I sat and visited with him and um, held his hand, you know, told him goodbye. Um, not an easy thing to do. That's, that's, I mean, you know, if you've ever been in that situation, we all want to believe, oh, he's going to get better. This is all going to turn out just fine. But um, I had a chance to, to sit with him and visit, and about 5.30 the next morning, his daughter called me and said, you know, Daddy passed away. And I was so grateful that I had that chance to, to, to share with him, or at least to tell him face-to-face, you have had an immense and positive impact on my life because he's the guy who got me started reading original sources, doing original research and I don't mean to sound like well, I became an expert on liberty at that moment. It's an ongoing process and one that I'm still very much a part of. But it was looking at Abe's example. It was the kind of questions he asked as a, as a, as a loving friend, not as a schoolmaster or a teacher, that built that little flame in my heart that he clearly saw back in you know, July of 1997 into a roaring furnace of love for freedom and a willingness to speak up and be a voice in its defense. And we've stayed in touch with uh, with his dear wife, Edna, all these years. I actually had the chance to travel to St. George in April and speak to a group there. And, uh, and on a whim, my wife and I decided that we would just uh, try to, to reach out to Edna and, and see if we could catch up with her. So we called her out of the blue. She had, she was actually out to lunch with her brother and, 
but we were close enough that we said, you know what, let's just make the effort and, and see if we can, can find her. She was going to walk home. She was close enough to, to where, where she was living at the time she had walked to, to Ermita's to, to get something to eat. And we drove down the street, and there, there she was, <clears throat> walking with her, with her brother, and had the most wonderful visit with her. And I, I didn't have the sense that this is the last time you're going to see her, but it was just, it was so unexpected, and the timing just worked out so good. Looking back at it now, um, it's very hard for me not to, to feel a sense of, there was some kind of providential um, coincidence, if you will, or providential blessing at work there that uh, that gave me that chance to go and, and visit with her. And at 96, she's still just as, as sweet and fiery and just this, this wonderful person. Well, Edna went to her rest, and I'm just, I'm taking this first segment of my show today to honor her, to honor her family, to honor her husband, Abe, who I still count as, as one of my dearest friends. I have a couple of uh, books that once belonged to him. This is one of the things Edna gave me, um, a couple of, of books of Abe's. And as I went to read these, something I noticed was Abe was a guy who would write in his books. And I know our mothers told us from an early age, you do not write in a book. I would beg to differ. I think one of the greatest things you can do, if you have a book that, that you absolutely resonate with, something that, that gives you meaning, not only read that book, but write. Write down questions that occur to you as you read certain passages. Underline things. Make comments. Because every time I open up one of those books, it's like my friend Abe is right there with me. So if you're looking for the secret to uh, immortality, I'm not saying that's it. But it's a pretty good way to, to keep your influence alive in the lives of people who will follow in your footsteps. All right. I got that out of my system. I'm, I just I want you to know. I love the neighbor family. I send my condolences. At the same time, I'm, I'm feeling this, this sense of sadness as well as joy that um, Abe and Edna are, are reunited. But more than anything, I share this with you just so that you understand. It's such a little thing. It's such a little thing to be kind to other people or to welcome them into your life. You never know the impact that you're going to have. And a very big part of who I am today and what I stand for today stems from that friendship and the influence of Abe and Edna Neighbor in my life. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's dive in here with both feet. I guess you don't dive with your feet. Let's jump in with both feet. Now let's dog paddle around in circles. Now, I uh, I want to jump into a topic here that is, this is getting my attention just because, I don't know, I, I had this impression that, hey, you know, the, the whole fear narrative and the whole idea that everybody must mask, everybody must isolate, everybody must vaccinate had kind of been dying down, or at least people were looking around them. <clears throat> they were trusting what their eyes and their ears were, were showing them and realizing that, okay, COVID is a real thing. We all know people who have either been immensely sickened or perhaps died because of this virus. 
But at the same time, it's not nearly the deadly bubonic plague threat that, uh, that we were told it was. And so I was finding myself getting caught up in the idea that, well, you know, maybe people are just going to go ahead and bring it back to normal because that's, you know, that's where things seem to be headed. Nope. Look around us right now. You will see governments all around the world literally placing law-abiding grown-ups under house arrest for not agreeing to get an injection. Now, I, you know, I'm... I'm not trying to stir up, you know, anger here, but I think something's not right. You know, Austria and Germany right now, they're locking it down hard. Australia literally has built camps for the the people who they deem to be a risk from COVID. And I by camps, I don't mean, you know, summer camp where we go and we lose weight and sing songs around the campfire. I mean, like guarded facilities where you, if you want to leave, you have to get permission from someone, the armed someones who were guarding that camp. And if you leave without their permission, that means you've got to cross the barbed wire and run for your life. But they will come after you and they will put you back in the camp. Now, it could be me, but uh, how that's functionally any different from prison, you know, I, I just can't see it. I came across an article here by Stacy Rudin. I have followed Stacy's writings now for some time. Really find her to be a perceptive and, and rational voice. This is a piece that was penned for the Brownstone Institute. Brownstone.org. This is, this is one of my favorite resources for getting a good, solid take on what's going on without all the, the media gaslighting and without all the, the spin and partisanship that comes from many of the other uh, traditional mass media. The article's titled, First Comply, Then We'll Grant You Some Rights. Stacy Rudin says, More and more people feel like something is off about our response to the COVID pandemic. This pandemic is claimed by political establishment prophets to be the first time in history that we need universal, worldwide, and this part's in quotation marks, vaccination, to dissipate a respiratory pathogen. Now, the proffered vaccines do not provide sterilizing immunity. Rather, they lead to regular breakthrough infections. Yet we're directed to mix and match them as we like on a regular basis in order to to eat in restaurants and attend events. Having recovered from the disease itself does not suffice to maintain your rights. The ability to prove that you're not susceptible to the pathogen due to inherent good health does not suffice. To maintain freedom of movement, you must submit to the vaccinations, or to the injections, rather. And Stacey Rudin says something is off. They want us to take these vaccines very, very badly. They want to build a QR tracking infrastructure on this safety premise very badly. And she says one must ask, did they ever have a legitimate basis to lead us to this point? Did they really believe they could save grandma with a lockdown? By picking apart the superficially flawed justification they gave to the terrified world population for first imposing universal house arrest, we can see... They did not. Both the World Health Organization and the Imperial College modeler, Neil Ferguson, called for lockdowns specifically based on China's Wuhan lockdown of January 2020. They admitted that lockdown was something no one previously believed would work. 
when Xi Jinping succeeded, that's in quotation marks, they abruptly reversed course 180 degrees, calling for the entire world to copy China. And she backs this up with a quote from Neil Ferguson. It's a communist one-party state, we said. We couldn't get away with it in Europe, we thought. And then Italy did it, and we realized we could. If China had not done it, the year would have been very different. Stacey Rudin says six weeks after the discovery of the first case, the World Health Organization, during a press conference, sold the world on lockdown by claiming that Wuhan's curve is flatter compared to other regions of China. Now, the data it used to make this case, a case that it knew would devastate world economies and any individual human who could not earn money by sitting in front of a computer screen, was presumably provided via the communist dictator. Here's the quote. So here's the outbreak that happened in the whole country on the bottom. Here's what the outbreak looked like outside of Hubei. These Here are the areas of Hubei outside of Wuhan. And then the last one is Wuhan. And you can see this is a much flatter curve than the others. And that's what happens when you have an aggressive action that changes the shape that you would expect from an infectious disease outbreak. This is extremely important for China, but it's extremely important for the rest of the world. The Chinese government and the Chinese people have used the non-pharmaceutical measures or the social measures to effectively change the course of the disease as evidenced by the epidemic curves. In the report, we have recommended this method to the international community. So I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, that's from the World Health Organization. Now, this superficially pleasing explanation, one easily accepted by a trusting, scared person, raises huge red flags on closer analysis. Stacy Rudin asks, first, how was the testing in the various regions conducted? Was it randomized throughout the population or were only those who presented at clinics or hospitals tested? How many tests were conducted per capita? Was that number standard throughout the regions? How could we be sure asymptomatic cases were captured? And so forth. In short, each curve could simply have depicted testing protocol, the tester could quite literally have compiled any curve it wanted. But even worse, there's a logical flaw so breathtaking it's impossible to believe it could have been overlooked by all lockdown-imposing world governments. Of the thousands of national, state, and local political and media actors cheering on the lockdowns, at least one must have noticed that while the curve may have been flatter in Wuhan, the, de- the disease still went away in all of China. So that supposed flatter curve in Wuhan had zero net benefit. The residents there suffered through the pain of lockdown. Neighboring regions did not, but they all ended up at the same point. Now, China's not reported any COVID cases in nearly four months. Prior to that, its cases were flatlined for 15 months since March 2020. So China's disease curve would be comedic if the rest of the world had not given up democracy and precious constitutional rights to fight the virus. And she backs this up with a chart of active cases in China. Now contrast this with the rest of the world, particularly the countries that tried hardest to replicate the Chinese example. We're talking places like Peru, Israel, Australia, Singapore, New Zealand, and Canada. All of them have reported multiple waves of covid despite all the pain of lockdown. Even mass vaccination has not stopped waves of cases. China is the only country with a perfectly flat curve, and it did that with a single city lockdown, despite reporting the presence of the virus in many other regions. Magic.
Now, Stacey Rudin says world governments certainly know about this. They do not trust the communist dictator. If they really believed the disease was serious and China underreported cases, they would not be firing doctors and nurses who refused the vaccine after working safely with COVID patients for 18 months. Rather, they know that the rules have no effect. The disease curves rise and fall, rise and fall. It would be absurd. It would be absurd, rather, and perverse to conclude that the rules work sometimes and fail at others. I'm going to come back to this in a few moments. And, of course, if uh, you want to check out this article for yourself, it's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to send a quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. This is a great way for you to get stocked up on food storage with ReadyWise emergency food supplies. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, if you don't have your, your or if you, if you have a basic food storage program, there's always gaps you can fill in. So, I mean, you don't have to just go out there and buy one huge package and be done with it. Hopefully you're rotating foods through and, you know, there, there are so many different things that they offer. There's the prepper pack, the hunting bucket. I really thought the uh, seven-day emergency dry bag, which you can pick up for $109.99, I thought that was a really smart idea. We're talking 60 servings, and we're talking 25-year shelf life. Oh, and there's one other little aspect here that you should probably know about. If you order through lifesavingfood.com, use my last name, Hyde, as your code at checkout, you get a 25% discount. That's a really generous and deep discount being offered by Kendall, who's the owner of Life Saving Food. Please click on the link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com and consider getting a little store of food put aside or building up your existing store just in case things ever get, you know, weird. Not that that could ever happen. Back to Stacy Rudin's article for the Brownstone Institute. First comply, then we'll grant you some rights. She talks about how the world leaders looked at China and their lockdown of the Wuhan region, a single city lockdown, actually, and, and somehow it made the virus uh, just stop working at other places. But she says it's, it's, it's absurd to think that the rules would work sometimes and then fail at other times, yet these world leaders keep imposing rules. The population complies conditioned to an illusion of control, a superstitious belief that because we did something, it must have had an effect. But Stacey Rudin says facts are facts, even if even the vaccines have not stopped the virus because there are breakthrough infections. And desiring to be good people, everyone stays unthinkingly on the track that started with Wuhan's lockdown. I noticed the uh, Epic Times reported over the weekend a completely 100% fully vaccinated cruise, uh, you know, a cruise ship full of people, everybody 100% vaccinated, had an outbreak of COVID. Now, I'm not telling you, therefore, you know, everything you've been told is wrong, but doesn't that at least raise some questions? 
The vaccine will protect you. And in fact, we're going to do this so everybody who's on this ship will have been 100% vaccinated. This should be the safest cruise ever up until an outbreak, a breakthrough, you know, infection occurs. And there you are. Something's a little bit off here. Again, to, to refer to, to Stacy's uh, terminology. Now, Stacy Rudin says they're trying to save Grandma, but Grandma's fate is sealed. What is actually happening is they're paving the way to routine, universal, mandatory vaccination. The political establishment intends to make the unvaccinated second-class citizens, to dehumanize them and deny them basic rights many generations have taken for granted. This conditions the population to movement restrictions based on behavior. Compliance gets you rights, like a dog earning treats. Now, in this system, which is steadily getting underway in country after country, a person who weighs 350 pounds is completely sedentary and eats a steady stream of Big Macs is considered healthy and accepted in society. The decisive factor is obedience. He dutifully takes all of the boosters. By contrast, a world-class athlete such as uh, Novak Djokovic cannot play tennis at the Australian Open. He is deemed an infection risk because he insists on maintaining his body using Eastern-style health practices. By the way, the same ones that made him into the greatest tennis player of all time. The establishment would rather he copy the Big Mac devotee described above because it earns them, not him, more profits. She says the political establishment is so devoted to this cause that it's hard to see how we can extricate ourselves. Accepting the first lockdown was the decisive point. We sacrificed our rights due to fear, and nearly two years later, we still don't have them back. It was as obvious then as it is now. Power is never seized and then voluntarily returned. Australia now has quarantine camps. Unvaccinated Canadians cannot use mass transit. Austrians who refuse the jab cannot leave their homes. It bears repeating. World governments are holding law-abiding adults in house arrest for refusing to take an injection. This is not a drill. Combine this real-life dystopia with the twisted logic used to launch the lockdowns, and it's hard to ignore the sinking feeling that lockdown was preconceived or was a, a preconceived pathway to where we are now, staring down the barrel at permanent, regular, mandatory adult vaccination. Your immune system is now a subscription service, and of course the corresponding movement, passports. Stacy Rudin asks, why do they want to inject us so badly? Certainly not for our own good. They act in their own self-interest under the cover of fake, grandma-saving goodwill. They are stealing from us, from you. And she asks, how much more will you let them take? I'll grant you, that's enough right there to make some people feel pretty uncomfortable. But maybe we need to be uncomfortable, or at least uncomfortable enough to recognize at some point you've got the choice. Do I go along with this or not? I know what my answer is. Have you thought through yours? I'm going to shift gears here. Politicians love to pretend that they are the answer to every problem we face, but how well does government welfare stack up when compared to private charity? Well, it's really no contest. Charity constitutes a robust alternative to government welfare, one that's far more ethical and far more effective, says Joel Lim, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. 
He says it's that time of year again when Americans consume more than ever, but also the time when Americans give more than ever. Indeed, America's generosity as a whole is actually quite extensive, with Americans giving $471 billion in 2020. That's an all-time high. That's more than what the vast majority of countries bring in for tax revenue. 80% of this is from individuals, according to Giving USA. Joel Lim says, Americans in general are incredibly generous, with 25% of Americans volunteering every year. You convert that to a dollar value, that's roughly $179 billion worth of work. And most of this charity comes from the rich, with 93% of households that make over $162,501 donating to charity, and 91% of households that make over $125,001 donating to charity. Since the government started the war on poverty 56 years ago, it has spent $27 trillion on this effort, and yet it was only the beginning seven years when poverty rates went down. Why? Well, one likely explanation is that welfare has taught people not to work, as governmental welfare dependency statistics have shown. Indeed, 93% of welfare recipients rely on welfare for more than two years. Charity, on the other hand, is not guaranteed, so it encourages people to take responsibility and become self-sufficient. Another problem with government welfare is the bureaucracy. For example, studies found that 70% of the money spent on budgeting for government assistance gets spent upholding the bureaucracies, with only 30% actually going to the poor. Private charities, on the other hand, give over 70% of their proceeds to the poor. And there are a ton of really good examples like this, like Feeding America, which can turn $1 into a shocking 12 pounds of food for the poor or 10 large meals. In fact, raising half as much money from voluntary private charity instead of forced taxation is estimated to produce the same impact as the government, if not more. Americans are a generous people, and we will step up and provide for the poor, especially if taxation is lowered through sensible cuts in welfare. Studies have found that decreasing government funding increases the number of donors, which makes sense because a decrease in public spending means people have more money to spend themselves. Joel Lim says a huge welfare state is not a practical solution for America and its one-size-fits-all approach simply isn't working. The effects of the interventionist welfare state have been disastrous to taxpayers, communities, liberty, and the poor. Now, he cites another of a, 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 a group of other studies that seem to bear this out. But in every case, it was clear that private charity outperforms government welfare, provides a robust alternative, as Joel Lim puts it, one that's far more ethical and far more effective. I'm not sure exactly how we get control of that welfare back into the hands of our communities, our churches, individuals. But when the day comes that enough people are are willing to step up, switch their conscience back on and actually act like they are their brother's keeper, that's going to be a good day for everybody involved, especially for the needy. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, I'm feeling kind of reflective today, and I'm sorry because you get to come along for the ride, but uh, I spend a lot of time this weekend thinking about uh, life. And one of the things that I'm, I'm beginning to realize is that when each one of us reaches the end of what's hopefully a long, productive life, it's very doubtful that we're going to spend much time regretting the times we failed to uh, drive a nice enough car. We failed to argue, you know, with the right people, to own, you know, the right uh, ideological opponents. In fact, truth be told, I think more likely than not, any regrets we may feel at the end of our lives will likely be for opportunities that we missed to be kind to the people around us. I think there's truth in this. There's times still that I remember, you know, that uh, I could have extended a kindness or I should have extended a kindness, and I chose not to for whatever reason. And at the time, I was justified. I'm in a hurry. I need to do this. And my kids are, you know, they're in the way here. And Hmm. That's the kind of stuff that I do. I'll, I'll, I'll feel a pang of regret when I think I wish I'd have handled that differently. And it almost always comes down to, I wish I had been kinder. Well, Barry Brownstein has a magnificent essay on the power of kindness. And I'm going to share this with you and, and say I, this may actually shift your definition of how you define personal success. Barry Brownstein writes, recently my wife learned that 103 students enrolled at her university are wards of the state. They have no parents or home. And he says, as she shared her story, she choked up and so did I. He says, life is hard. And even for those who are materially comfortable, there are problematic circumstances and challenges to overcome. No one has spared the pain of losing loved ones. As we go about our day, we encounter strangers Some of those strangers would benefit by our kindness, perhaps just a smile or a kind word. Can we not all increase our kindness quotient? Barry Brownstein writes about acclaimed writer George Saunders, who reflected that what he he regrets most in his life are failures of kindness. In a convocation speech delivered at Syracuse University, Saunders identifies three mindsets that sets rather that stop us from being kinder. He calls them built-in confusions. So he says, each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions that are probably somehow Darwinian. These are, number one, we're central to the universe. That is, our personal story is the main and most interesting story, the only story, really. Number two, we're separate from the universe. There's us and then out there all that other junk, dogs and swing sets in the state of Nebraska and low-hanging clouds and, you know, other people. I love that. And number three, we're permanent. Death is real. Okay, sure, for you, but not for me. Now, Barry Brownstein says, here's the curious thing about these mindsets. We don't really believe them, but we act as if they're true. Saunders puts it like this. We don't really believe these things. Intellectually, we know better, but we believe them viscerally and live by them, and they cause us to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others. Even though what we really want in our hearts is to be less selfish, more aware of what's actually happening in the present moment, more open and more loving. Saunders asks, how might we become more loving, more open, less selfish, more present, less delusional? Well, Saunders advises us to be good 
and proactive and even somewhat desperate patient on our own behalf. Be a good, proactive, and even somewhat desperate patient on our own behalf and seek out the most efficacious anti-selfishness medicines energetically for the rest of our life. Now, Barry Brownstein here points out, Saunders isn't advising against personal ambition, but he asks us to err in the direction of kindness. How might we do that? Saunders advises, avoid the things that would reduce you and make you trivial. Instead, turn toward the luminous part of yourself. Luminous part? Barry says Saunders here is speaking of the part of us that exists beyond personality. He adds, your soul, if you will, is as bright and shining as any that has ever been. Bright as Shakespeare's, bright as Gandhi's, bright as Mother Teresa's. So the process of becoming kinder or being kinder is a process of subtraction. Clear away everything that keeps you separate from this secret luminous place. Believe it exists. Come to know it better. Nurture it. Share its fruits tirelessly. We think we are separate from the universe and live our lives through our personal story of me. But these confusions keep us from our luminous place and block the flow of kindness. Barry Brownstein says, life is a contact sport. We take our lumps and bumps from the lens of separation. We ask, why is this happening? Why did they do this to me? From the soul lens, we see these lumps and bumps very differently. In the smallest everyday encounters, we can remember and strengthen our true nature. He says, I had a question as I was setting up my health care flexible spending account. Erin, the service representative at the call center, was unable to answer my question, so she faked it. She gave me an answer that was clearly wrong. Now, perhaps she was new to the job. In any case, her work was a hard battle. Now, he says, there have been similar situations in which my irritation may have been heard in my voice. That day, I made a different choice. With sincere empathy, I said, Erin, it must be difficult to ha- having to answer questions about many plans with many rules. The stress went out of her voice as we started fresh and solved the issue. What a great example. And he says, I'm sure you can share your own example of a time where you chose kindness instead of taking things personally. Every day presents opportunities to practice kindness as we let go of our personal sense of importance. Perhaps you're standing in the supermarket, very much lost in the concerns of your day, standing in the checkout line, complaining thoughts arise as you observe how slowly the cashier is moving. You choose not to grab hold of those thoughts. Instead, you act contrary to your personal sense of importance. You smile at the cashier and sincerely ask her how her day has been. And for a moment, her burden seems to lift as she shares how busy the lines have been. In that moment, you and the cashier share your common humanity. The day's a bit brighter for both of you. Through brief encounters, we may discover we're not really separate at all. We impact the arc of the day of others as they impact ours. Marcus Aurelius advised in his meditations, quote, Keep reminding yourself of the way things are connected, of their relatedness. All things are implicated in one another and in sympathy with each other. This event is the consequence of some other one. Things push and pull on each other and breathe together and are one. Barry Brownstein says, perhaps today you didn't climb as high on the ladder of success as you'd planned. Saunders would say, so what? Being kind is job one. Here's a quote from Saunders. Succeeding, whatever that might mean to you, is hard. 
and the need to do so constantly renews itself. Success is like a mountain that keeps growing ahead of you as you hike it. And there's the very real danger that succeeding will take up your whole life while the big questions go untended. End quote. So the point here is, there's no better time to begin to be kinder than this moment. Now is the only time to make a different choice. The words of Marcus Aurelius ring true. Each of us lives only now, this brief instant. The rest has been lived already or is impossible to see. And Barry Brownstein says when we stop being self-centered, we might discover, as Aurelius puts it, how few things you have to do to live a satisfying and reverent life. So I've shared this before for the sake of those hearing it for the first time. I still think this is one of the, the coolest examples of how you could put that into motion today. Just on the off chance. Let's say, let's say that you find yourself in a convenience store, the gas station, whatever, and you go to the checkout and particularly pay attention. If it's busy, if the cashier is really being worked hard, when you get to the checkout stand there, look around you and look, look for a candy bar. Look at a couple of them real quick and say, oh, man, oh, I just I can't decide. And then ask the cashier, what's your favorite? And whatever they tell you their favorite is, purchase one of those bars. And when the purchase is done, hand it to them and say, this is for you. You're doing a great job. Think about how you would feel if someone extended a little kindness like that to you. Does that not sound like just a, a great way to lift somebody's spirits? It's To me, it's, it's as brilliant as it is simple and unexpected. But it's the little building blocks like this that, uh, that make us into better people. And at the same time, it's not really about, uh, hey, look how much better I am walking out of here. You're better because... You realize you not only you know didn't make this person's life harder, but you actually did some small, meaningful thing that improved their life. Like, like Barry Brownstein says in this essay, both lives are brightened when we make that kindness a priority. All right. Check out the show notes. There's a link to this wonderful article in there. They're at thebrianhideshow.com. You'll find a lot of other good reading there as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.